remember when I had a voice but didn't use it They were singing to me but I ignored my muses I finally found silence and I started listening And out of body experience what I was witnessing Welcome to the Gunny's Guys Podcast Powered by More Benefit Resources The show that shares the stories of veteran entrepreneurs and resources That will help inspire and guide your own personal journey and transition from the military Everyone needs a gunny even on the other side of the DD-214. I'm here to be that mentor behind the microphone. Enjoy the show. All right, everybody. Super excited today to uh, talk with Sergeant Q. Really excited to hear your story. This is undoubtedly part one of... Uh, of our conversation part two, we'll, we'll get into a lot more other stuff, but I'm really excited for the audience to hear your story and just how you went from Marine to entrepreneur to all the other things, right? Where we really love to start, man, is how the heck did you end up on the yellow footprints? Um, I grew up in a small mountain town in Northern California called Mad River. And I don't know if you've ever seen a documentary uh, a few years back, it was called Murder, Murder Mountain. And so it was about the marijuana trades up in Northern California. And that's where I grew up. I grew up on the backside of that, that, uh, that mountain, Murder Mountain, where um, they filmed that documentary. And so I lived right on the Humboldt and Trinity County line. So there's a saying, uh, it's called the Emerald Triangle, which is Humboldt, Trinity, and Mendocino County. The Emerald Triangle being those are the three counties that um, the most marijuana comes out of. And that's where I grew up. And my parents were marijuana farmers. And so I've seen that industry go from the wild west all the way to Main Street. You know, my parents really, you look at it now, I mean, we were outlaws when I was a kid, but now you call them pioneers, you know, which I guess, I mean, that's kind of how every movement starts. You know, they're outlaws first. In America, we were all outlaws, you know, when we came here um, and it's, uh, you know, now, now we're trendsetters. So that's how I grew up. I grew up um, with my parents growing marijuana and, you know, kind of running from the cops all the time. They had these, uh, they had a special task force called CAMP, which is called California Agricultural Marijuana Patrol. And uh, they would come out at every harvest and they would fly spotter planes over and they would see basically heat signatures because the THC in the marijuana leaf gives a, a brighter heat signature than any other plant. And then these sheriffs would uh, fast rope down, cut everybody's crops, and then haul it to the airport and burn it. They never got all of it, but they sure got a lot of it. And then, um, you know, after harvest and everything, these uh, gangsters from uh, LA would come up and they would, you know, buy all the marijuana. And then that would be our money for the rest of the year. And so that's, that's how I grew up, which is funny. Uh, now, because I, I teach uh, mental health and I work real closely with law enforcement um, as an adult, but as a kid, I was taught to just stay away from them. We were never taught to hate cops. That wasn't a thing, but just stay away from them, you know? And so I grew up in that small town. It was very anti-government, anti-military. Uh, there were actually a lot of Vietnam vets uh, that lived out there uh, that I didn't know about until I got older and became a veteran myself and went back to visit that a lot of those guys were old Vietnam vets. And that's how they dealt with PTSD was just to hide away uh, in the forest and grow marijuana and get high as a kite. So uh, I went from that's there. Awesome. <laughs> that's awesome, man. Growing up, uh, I didn't have any running water in my house um, or electricity. You know, it was a very primitive, primitive uh, house that I lived in, no flushing toilet, anything like that. Uh, we had a wood stove and that was basically it. And uh, I, we ended up becoming homeless, you know? I mean, living that kind of lifestyle comes with all kinds of benefits, you know? Uh, you know, child abuse, spousal abuse, drugs, alcohol, you know, homelessness. So it's not a glamorous lifestyle by any means. Um, and we ended up being homeless for a bit. And then my mom and dad split up and uh, my mom took us to Oregon, Coos Bay, Oregon. And I went to high school in Coos Bay, Oregon in Marshfield. Uh, I wrestled, I uh, played football, was not very good at it. I'm kind of a small guy, but I did really well in wrestling. And then um, uh, my wrestling career moved into cheerleading. Yeah, I was a, I was a varsity cheerleader uh, for Marshfield High School and, uh, and a wrestler. 
and we won state that year, first time that we ever won state. And so now I'm in the Hall of Fame for uh, cheerleading. Oh my gosh, you are, a, this is freaking nuts. So um, how tall are you, by the way? I'm 5'4", and when I joined the Marine Corps, I was 120 pounds. Now I'm about 160. Uh, well, that's not true. I'm probably close to 168 right now. But I was a small guy when I joined the Marine Corps. There were only two guys in my boot camp platoon that were sh- that were shorter than me uh, when I went through training. So That's awesome. That's awesome. So, yeah, that's uh, from Coos Bay, Oregon. I was recruited out and uh, joined the Marine Corps. I, I just thought, like, I want to do something different with my life. I want to get out of here. I grew up really, really poor. And I remember when I was a kid, I used to sit in the library when I was like in fifth and sixth grade. And I would read National Geographic magazines, man, every day because I got to see all these really cool places that I knew I was never going to get to go see. Right? Because I knew, I knew I was the kind of poor where you knew you were poor. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I remember looking at um, the Maasai people in, in, uh, in Kenya. You know, they have the red face paint and they jump. Um, that's kind of their traditional dancing. I looked at places like Anchor Wat and I looked at like the pyramids, you know, down in South America with the Aztecs and the Incas. And I just thought like, I'm never going to get to see these places. So I would just read about them in these magazines. And, uh, and now I've been to every one of those places, you know, with, uh, with my ministry. I, I've been, I've walked uh, in those ancient footprints, you know, at Anchor Wat. I've, I've barbecued with the Maasai people out there in the, the jungles of uh, North Africa. All right, so see the world, they said. Travel the world. Uh, yeah. See the sights, they said. Yeah, I, I uh, you, uh, you pop into the Marine Corps because uh, you want a little experience. Where did that take you? So I went in, I knew I wanted to have flexibility when I went in the Marine Corps. So I uh, became a communication specialist. And um, because every unit rates calm guys. And when I was going through my schooling, one of my teachers there, instructors, uh, Sergeant Love, uh, L-U-V, poor unfortunate soul, he was an Anglico Marine. And he asked me, he's like, hey, Q, you, uh, you afraid of heights? No. He says, you want to jump out of airplanes? I said, yeah, heck yeah. And so uh, he talked to some guys and got me a hookup. And uh, when I checked into, it used to be Shrig, now it's meth, but back then it was called Shrig. Uh, I remember the lieutenant looking at the, the orders and he's like, I'm going to send you to the 9th Palm Battalion. And I said, sir, I think I'm supposed to go to Anglico. And he's like, yeah, that's what it says, but they don't take Lance Corporals out of school in Anglico. You've got to be an NCO to get in there. And you've got to, you know, there's all these things. And I said, well, give him a call. And so he did. He called down there and they said, yeah, that's our guy. Send him to us. I had no idea what I was getting into, getting into Anglico. I had no clue, like none. Uh, and I showed up and the first thing that they started doing was um, thrashing us. I'm in my alphas and I'm getting PT and I'm thinking like, this isn't supposed to happen. I didn't realize that I went from my school straight into what they call ABC, the Anglico basic course. And there was a whole group of guys that go through this and you got to be able to pass this or they do send you off to Ninth Palm or wherever else. Because there's a lot of uh, 0861s, which are your artillery guys and then communications guys. And then of course we have a bunch of support guys, you know, like motor T and all of that. But in order to be an Anglico, you've got to be able to pass this Anglico basic course. And you really got to be super hot when it comes to land nav because land nav and call for fire go hand in hand. If you're, if, for sure. if you don't know your land nav, you're blowing yourself up, you know? So yeah. that'd be Johnny on the spot with, uh, what, with the land. What, what year is this Q? What year? 97. 97, cool. Yeah. That was the last year they thrashed people in alphas anywhere. Well, they weren't supposed to do it then. <laughs> <laughs> this is general Kulak, okay? I'm like, this isn't supposed to happen, but I just, you know, whatever. You just do it. So, Anglico, did you stay in Anglico your entire enlistment, or uh, did you jump around? Pretty much. Um, they Well, so they disbanded Anglico in, like, early 2000. They said, oh, the Marine Corps doesn't need this capability anymore and so they disbanded it that only lasted for a couple of years and then they brought it back so i was there through the stand down and then they transitioned it to they call it the mle the marine liaison element which was the exact same unit they just took the jump billet away 
Uh, and then they took away most of the call for fire as well. So it's just basically a liaison. So Anglico is the Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. So we have linguists and we work with a lot of foreign militaries like the Korean Marines. Um, we work with a lot of different uh, BRIC services, you know, the, the, the Navy and the Army for a liaison between the Marine Corps and all these other units. And we teach them how to they'll embed us into these other units so they can use our aircraft capability. So Q, biggest, biggest like immediate change, right? You, uh, you come from where you come from and man, we could talk about that for hours on end in and of itself, but you come from where you come from, you join the Marine Corps, uh, biggest immediate change for you, personality, uh, character, what have you. Biggest immediate change for me. I mean, a lot of guys were complaining, you know, about, um, you know, about the food or about, the accommodations and I was like hey man I got a warm bed and three meals a day this is good like I don't know what you guys are complaining about like they're yelling at you like so what man they're feeding you every day you get you know you got fresh water and you, get, you got a rack like life's good man I don't know what y'all are complaining about so it's as a kid good. I was taught to endure hardship you know I didn't realize that's what it was but that's what it was and so when I went into the marines it, it was easy, I think, for me because I had, I had already endured, in, endured so much hardship in my life as where other people maybe hadn't. So uh, I think that's why I did so well in Anglico, too, is because I didn't mind, you know, um, the hardship. It, it, it just felt normal to me as where other guys really struggled to get past that, that mental block of hardship. Um, I passed that when I was like 10 years old, you know. So I think that was the most immediate change was realizing um that that uh my childhood was pretty rough and uh but it's paying off man because i'm not going through the struggles that all these dudes are going through yeah you uh you probably could have moved right on to seals after that with ease what uh you stay in anglico your whole time in the marine corps pretty much so it, i had broken time i got out i was out in the irr for less than a year and then in 2003 the war was ramping up so it was actually like december of 2002 uh, and a year prior, I'd had a good friend of mine, Brian Bertrand, he died uh, in Afghanistan. He was the first casualty in the war on terror. And uh, this is a classmate of mine. We, we went to high school together. His dad was actually my geography teacher <clears throat> in high school. And uh, I recruited him into the, into the Marine Corps. And uh, his C-130 went down in Afghanistan. And so he, he was the navigator. He died. And it really broke me, man. I felt like... I don't know, like I owed it to him to, to go sign up and go fight. And so I had been out. I could have just stayed my time in the IRR, but uh, I, I didn't. I called back up and said, hey, who's the first unit that's deploying over there that's near me? And they said, well, six engineers, and they could use an FO. So I deployed with the six engineers out of Portland, which is a reserve unit. Are either of you guys reservists? Guilty of charge. Old career reservists, man. Non-committal, absolutely. Man, I feel so bad for you guys. I just got to tell you, it it was such a culture shock to go from uh, the regular Marine Corps to a reserve unit, and uh, because these guys don't have the wrench time to know their job proficiently like the rest of us do. So was that was that like one pump? You go back to being a civilian, or did you stay in for a couple of years at that point? No, so that was it. So. Um, I, I, I was out for about a year and then I went into that year in Iraq and then they said the war was over, you know, and so they're sending everybody home. And so I could have stayed if I wanted to, but I would have had to reenlist. And my options were to stay and uh, reenlist. They said my first year would be right there in Iraq doing like convoy security. And I'm like, I'm not cut out for that. That's not my job. That's, I don't know anything about that. I can blow up a convoy. I'm better at that. You got any of those jobs? Um, but they didn't. It was convoy security. Uh, my first year would be in country. In the next three years, they said they'd put me back in like a training battalion, something like that. Um, and they would have given me like a $30,000 signing bonus, something like that. But I opted to just go home because there was no real mission for me as an Anglico Marine to, to do there. And so I just, I, I came home and I stayed for a little bit with six engineers, getting them uh, up to speed so they could get the, the next rotation uh, out into the field. 
Um, so I'm a close combat instructor. So I taught hand-to-hand -hand combat in Anglico. And so I trained a lot there. I trained a lot on uh, basic radio etiquette, which was lacking. And then, you know, how to set up field expedient antennas. So Anglico, they teach you this whole course on field expedient antennas where I can take, basically take anything in an urban environment and turn it into a directional or omnidirectional antenna to be able to push my signal out. So I taught a lot of that there. And then I just got out and went back to civilian life. So when you, when you transition out, I, I got to ask, man, like, as you go on leave, as you, uh, you know, get time off from the Marine Corps between deployments, like, are, are you going back home to that same environment that you described initially? Right. So no, no, I wasn't. I was uh, living in Washington at the time. I'd gotten a job working for American Building Maintenance. It was a janitorial company. It's actually the largest janitorial company in the world. Uh, I was working for them as a supervisor and I was trying to work my way up to become an account manager. And so when I left, uh, that's what I came back to was that. But I tell you what, man, it was the, it was the strangest feeling coming home because I went literally from the battlefield to my house in like 48 hours. So there wasn't a really good system right? Uh, uh, like they have now. It was really like, okay, plane ticket to San Diego, turn in your weapon and your field gear, go to Portland, uh, do some paperwork. And then they gave me a bus ticket. So 48 hours I went from the battlefield to my front door. And uh, I was in Washington, but it was so weird. It was, it was almost like being on a, uh, like another planet, you know, like my brain just couldn't really comprehend it. I, I it was so weird. Um, it was just a weird thing. I was just even thinking about it now, my brain couldn't really make sense of that. I was home, you know, I'm like, Oh, people, cause everybody is just going about their regular life, you know, like walking to the store or getting a soda pop or hitting McDonald's, you know? And I'm like, just a few days ago, we were hiding in bunkers cause there were scuds lighting off over here. And so my brain was just trying to reconcile all that. And so I really struggled, uh, <clears throat> you know, when I came home. What time of year was it when you came home? Uh, it was the fall, so it was like August, September timeframe. So it's still pretty hot, you know. But yeah, it was it was a it was a struggle, um, you know. And I the I remember they my mental health briefing uh, in country was all right. If anybody's having any nightmares or dealing with any uh, PTSD, go ahead and raise your hand right now and uh, fall out of formation because we're in formation to get on the bird. Okay, they've already done our gear inspection and uh, fall out right now and you'll get your mental health training right here in country with doc. Everybody else get on the bird, you're going home. Nobody fell out, man. Everybody got on that bird. And I was having problems back then. I just didn't really understand what it was. You know, it was big hypervigilance, which in combat's kind of a good thing, right? <laughs> Any little noise, you're like, oh, what's that? You know, yeah. go check that. Um, but when you get home and you're trying to sleep in bed and that stuff happens, it's, it's not really a good thing. So. I struggled with mental health a lot. Um, I wasn't getting help at the VA. The VA was honestly awful, uh, especially at that time. They just wanted to give you a bunch of medication and push you out the door. And the medication was worse than the actual PTSD. You know, they're putting me on trazodone and all kinds of crap. I couldn't even function, you know? And uh, I struggled a lot, turned to alcohol, drank myself uh, pretty much into oblivion. Uh, just till I passed out, not even to drink, to have fun, just to drink so I could pass out so I could sleep. I ended up ending my marriage because of it. Uh, ended up homeless for a while, uh, living in my car, traveling from, you know, California to Oregon to Washington. Uh, you know, was super depressed and uh, almost committed suicide um, on the 4th of July, a few years back. And so uh, quite a few years, actually, probably like uh, it was 2000. Eight, I think. Yeah. So, uh, just not. So you, so you literally went through four or five years of that type of lifestyle. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I had a lot of good jobs too, but I got fired from all of them because I could do the job really well. I just couldn't function with people. You know, I, I didn't get along well with, with people. Um, you know, I would just, I could take enough and then get to this point and I would just snap. And uh, I remember I had this good job driving concrete trucks and there was a kid, young kid there who, uh, you know, my last name is Quinones. And so, uh, you know, he'd always call me the dirty Mexican. 
He's like, oh, dirty Mexican, dirty Mexican. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's funny, it's funny. And I just had enough one day. I said, look, man. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I said, I'm done with it. Like, we're, we're done with the dirty Mexican stuff, dude. I'm just over it. And uh, he did it again. I said, all right, that's your last chance. I said, you do it again, and uh, it's going to be the end of you. And he said, all right, whatever, dirty Mexican. And he drove his concrete truck out of the plant. And so I said, okay. I washed out my truck with all the slurry from the, the concrete. Mm. Then I took the bobcat and I went over there and I scooped a bunch of that stuff up. Uh, concrete slurry and, and they have this like acid that's in it that breaks it down. Scooped a bunch of that stuff out of the pond, went over to his truck and dumped it in the bed of his truck. So his whole truck is just heaping with all this old gross concrete and acid like raining down the sides. And I had a white t-shirt off on. I took my white t-shirt off and I wrote dirty Mexican and I put it on the stick like a flag. And then I got my concrete truck and went back to work. And, wow, uh, but not for long. Really up, you know, uh, so I lost that job. I lost jobs. Um, you know, I was a sales manager for a car dealership. I lost that job because I just couldn't work well with people. And it all went back to not being able to manage my mental health and not being able to, um, to manage my, my stress level. I mean, you're at the low getting ready to commit suicide on July 4th. What, what's like, what's the next step? What, what changes that? It's crazy. So I remember it was a warm 4th of July day and, uh, I was just, I was really in a bad way and I was looking for a place to, to a quiet place to commit suicide to end my life. And I drove into this parking lot and I remember I backed in against the side of this building, um, in the shade and, and, uh, I had my nine millimeter pistol and I was going to just in my life there. And I could hear these kids playing on a playground just not too far away. And I thought to myself, ah, I'm gonna wait for these kids to leave the area. I don't want them to have to deal with this stuff, you know? So I, uh, I sat there and waited and uh, next thing I knew I woke up and it was getting evening time. And I was like, huh, I don't feel suicidal anymore. So I just falling asleep. Uh, when I woke up, the suicidal ideations were gone. And so I put my pistol away and went back about my, my day still struggling with mental health, but not, didn't have those suicidal ideations anymore. <clears throat> a few days later, a friend of mine invited me to go to a church and I was like, ah, I'm good. I, I'm not much into religion. Like it's not my thing. He's like, ah, just come and check it out. Come and check it out. So I did. He gave me the address and I drove right back into that very same parking lot that I'd almost ended my life in a few days before. The parking was a church and the playground uh, Christian school that was part of the church. Wow. And so let me tell you, that was super creepy, right? Like, whoa, that's, that's a trip. And I was like, okay, there's something here. Um, and so I went in and I started listening to the sermons and the pastor, it felt like he was just reading my mail. He was talking about feeling lost and alone. Um, and I was just like, man, that's me. And so I gave my life to the Lord. And I, I remember doing the altar call and thinking like, all right, so I'm going to pray to God and, and give my life to the Lord. And then everything's going to be fine. You know, everything's going to start looking up, but that didn't happen. You know, there were no angels singing, no lights coming from the sky. Right. Like, I was like, okay, well that didn't work. Um, but there's still something here. And so I've got to keep going after it. So I kept attending church and I met some guys and I went through like a small group study with them learned about the gospel, learned about Jesus, uh, and actually just started reading the Bible cover to cover, trying to figure this stuff out because it was too much of a coincidence for the things that had happened. And um, I got invited to go to, so it was during that time that I got fired from my sales manager job at a car dealership. So I didn't have a job. Um, and so I started a small little janitorial company just so I could pay some bills because I couldn't get hired anywhere. I'd burned a lot of bridges. And uh, I, nobody would hire me, not even to be a janitor, but they would subcontract some work to me so I could, you know, eat. And so I started doing that, just me and one other guy scrubbing toilets in the middle of the night, you know, doing floor care. And uh, over the last 13 years, I've grown that company from just two guys scrubbing floors to having over 105 employees here in the Pacific Northwest. So. Wow. That's incredible, man. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Um, so there's a lot, man, there's a lot of dudes that will be able to relate to that story. 
not the second half of it, but the first half. Um, um, do you, I mean, you, you see guys in that position where they can't get hired by everybody because they've been fired from so many other places. Do you think that that's a good path for guys to, to go down that path? Do you think entrepreneurship and Jesus saved you? Like, do you feel like some of that was, was what changed your life and turned you around? Well, I know, I know with a hundred percent certainty that it was, it was Jesus, you know, um, I had a lot of opportunities in the beginning, the fledgling state of my business to take really good paying jobs. One was to work for the DOC department of corrections. I did a, I did a skills test with them. I went through their public safety testing and I scored so high that they thought I cheated. And so they brought me back in and just asked me, Hey, did you cheat? Cause we looked on the cameras. We couldn't find you cheating but you scored higher than anybody's ever scored. Like, how did you do that? But it was a morals test is what it was. That was, it was a, the, all the questions that they really asked were all moral things. And I was so deeply involved in my spirituality at the time, trying to understand who God was, change the way I was living, making better decisions because I was reading and, and studying the Bible, not just reading it, but actually studying it. Like, what does this mean? And how do I apply it to my own life? And so when I took that test, like I aced it because I'm literally reading through the Bible and you learn about all these moral dilemmas that people are put in and how they fail. And so I'm learning all of this stuff in a way that had never been taught to me before. And I was just hungry for that knowledge. And so when I took that test, I scored really high. And I think a lot of guys, it's hard for us to go and work with other people where there's just kind of this ceiling that's put on us. Like the high performers, you get to a certain point and then it feels like people want to push you down, you know, to keep you right here because you're a great guy. And so I want to keep you on my team. But a lot of times that means you're not going to progress up because they want to keep you here because you're really valuable. Um, and I, I see a lot of guys in the military, they struggle with that because that was never, that was never the way the military was. It was, you teach one up, one down, you know, one up, one down. You, you're learning from the guy above you to take his position and you're teaching the guy below you to uh, take your position. You know, I mean, that's, that's totally opposite to what you see in the civilian sector. Nobody wants to teach the guy below them or the new guy coming in uh, everything they know because now they think their job's in jeopardy. This guy could take my job. This is my yeah. knowledge to keep it close to me so I can't be replaced. And I saw that a lot in the civilian sector. And I think that holds a lot of guys back. A lot of guys get frustrated with that that mentality. So I think entrepreneurship for guys like that, that are really struggling, you're seeing that um, entrepreneurship is the way to go. It will be the hardest job you ever do, but the most rewarding because your failure and your success depends on you and you alone. You can't blame anybody else. So I, I say entrepreneurship uh, is, is super rewarding. And I would suggest that the military guys try it, man. I mean, you're, you'd be surprised on what you can accomplish. When you look at other businesses out there, they're not dependable. Uh, they put out a crappy product and they don't want to take responsibility when things go wrong. Those are all things you learn in the military to do automatically. You know, if something goes wrong, it's your fault. You own up to it and, and you make it right. So many contractors out there don't do that when it comes to business. You know, they want to blame shift on somebody else um, or, or they're a business that has low integrity. Yeah. And no matter what business you have if you have if you have low integrity nobody wants to work with you you'll get by for a little bit but you know it's a small world people are going to figure you out real quick so if you can operate with integrity you're golden buy for a little bit but you know it's a small world people are going to figure you out real quick so if you can operate with integrity you're golden you know, even, even if you're more expensive or, or maybe you're a little bit slower than the competitor, it doesn't matter if you can be dependable and you can operate with integrity, man, people are going to absolutely love you. And, and I teach a small, I, I have a, a business mentoring short, a business mentorship group that I started where I've got a dozen guys that I help mentor in business. And I, that's what I teach them. I teach them the fundamentals, which is how to have integrity in all things. You know, I, I, I say, have three rules for life, be honorable in all things. Surround yourself with people of high integrity. And if anybody asks you to violate rule one, refer to rule two. <laughs> that's it, man. That's, that's it, you know? I hear you loud and clear. It's literally a sustainable advantage to be a man or a woman of character. Uh, it's incredible. 
dropping bars. I talk about that when I teach as well. You know, I had, um, you know, I lacked integrity in my business in the very beginning, like the first four or five years, and it almost ended my company. I had an employee that embezzled like $250,000 out of my company. Um, but it was my fault. It was my fault because this guy was a friend of mine and I knew he was cheating on his wife. I knew he was cheating on his taxes. I knew he was doing all this shady stuff, but I ignored it because I thought I needed this guy to keep the business running because he's putting numbers on the board and you know, he's my friend. And then next thing I know, he embezzles $250,000 out of my business and almost bankrupts me. Incredible. But that's because I allowed him to operate in my business. So it was my, my fault because it's my responsibility. Hmm. I won a lawsuit against the guy, you know, but I've never seen a dime because there's really no way to collect from him. Um, but there was a lot of other people during that time, smaller vendors and things like that, that he ripped off that I didn't have any responsibility to pay. Like the, the judge even said like, this is, these are your debts. These other things, like you don't have any responsibility to pay these subcontractors um, who he screwed over. But again, that's my employee. That's my responsibility. So I paid back every single one of those people, every one of those debts, even when the court said I didn't have to. I did it because it was the right thing to do. How long uh, did it take you to think like that, Q? Like that mentality, I think, is amazing. How long did it take you to get to that point where you thought that way? You know, it was during that process. God was really refining me. It says in the Bible that, um, you know, God will refine us uh, in the fires of affliction. And so as I was going through that process, because it was a big court battle that I had to go through because then he's claiming like, oh no, he's the owner of the company and that I'm crazy and that I don't you know. He, he tried to use my mental health against me and all this stuff. It was crazy, the stuff that he was doing. Um, and I had to fight through all of that, but I had to remain honorable in all things. That's what the Lord was teaching me because I could have went after this guy. We have a unique skill set. I could have murdered this dude um, and spent some time in jail and been like, whatever. And that thought literally crossed my mind. Like I get to snuff it out and just be done with this whole thing. Spend some time in jail, like whatever. But, uh, but I didn't do it. I, I had to remain honorable in all things. And that's what God was teaching me. So it was about 18 months that I was going through that court battle. And I just had to, you know, I was reading my word and I was praying every day and I was asking the Lord for help because this guy was doing crazy stuff, trying to get me to react. Like, it's, it's crazy. It sounds like uh, a made for TV drama, but this guy went online and he did, he made Craigslist ads posing as my wife um, soliciting for sex. So then my wife is getting all these phone calls and emails um, during this time. And I know that he's the one doing it, right? And then he's putting up these other ads saying, again, posing as my wife, uh, saying that she's a victim of domestic abuse and that she's on her way to the hospital right now and that somebody should come teach me a lesson. And so now I've got all these other people contacting me, like, like uh, saying they're going to come by my house and do all this stuff. But uh, it, it just, th that was the kind of stuff that I had to go through. And that's where God was really refining me and teaching me, um, you know, to just have patience and trust him and that I would be vindicated. And, you know, if I had done that, if I had killed that guy, sure, it would have, uh, it would have ended the problem, but it would have created a bunch more for me. And I wouldn't be here right now doing the things that I'm doing, helping all the people that I'm helping. So yeah. it's because of patience and trust in the Lord that I was able to uh, endure that. And that's where I learned those lessons about my, my, my motto, my three rules for life, you know, to have integrity, to be honorable in all things and to surround yourself with people of high integrity, you know? Q, you come from a spot where, you're at an absolute rock bottom in terms of self-value, self-worth, uh, you know, your own, um, your own character and morals and what have you. And then uh, moments later in life and the blink of an eye of life, like you are up against something where you, anybody would be vindicated or feel that you are justified in taking aggressive and nasty action and you did not like talk to me about the prayer the scriptures that brought you to the point where you can have a life-changing situation that can't even be accomplished through drugs man it just wouldn't happen 
Vengeance <clears throat> says, um, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And uh, you know, I, I really God showed me that, and it says it says that we do not war against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this dark world. So I had to really look at this guy who was doing all these things. And God had to teach me to have compassion for him because he's just a pawn in this spiritual chess match that's happening. This guy, yeah, he's responsible for his own actions, but he's being influenced by these, um, these dark forces. And that my fight was not against men, but against, uh, that had to fight on a new battlefield, the spiritual battlefield. You, then, does that does that feel like the out of body experience that you have in a combat situation at all? Does that feel at all like I, when you said that? I just think of the combat situations that I've been in and how it's almost as if you're watching your body act. It's almost it, there is nothing personal about the enemy in that, and you have almost disconnected yourself from the enemy, the devil, in this situation. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it, it, it's a very spiritual moment to have those, um, those realizations like, oh, wow. I'm, it's like, you're seeing something for the very first time, you know, uh, it's kind of like, I would equate it to, you know, you watch those videos of those kids who are colorblind and then they give them those glasses and they've yeah, been yeah. seeing their whole life and seeing colors and they put on those glasses and they're like, wow, that's what that looks like. That's what that is that blue looks like that. Um, that's what it was like for me to come to this spiritual awakening and realize that, um, that there is a God, there is a creator that he cares for me. And this is the way I should be living. My life is according to the tenets of the faith. Those moments, um, are beautiful. And so I'll share with you guys a moment where it was kind of like the, the starting point for me with that. And, uh, it's, it's, it's something I'll share with a lot of people, but I'll, I'll share it with you guys um, because you expressed interest in the spiritual side. So I just started my business um, and my dad uh, was in hospice care and my dad was a drunk and a drug addict and uh, used to just beat the hell out of me when I was a kid. I hadn't seen him since I was like 13, but I got a call from his hospice nurse somehow. I'd only been a Christian like six months. And she said, uh, hey, if you want to, um, come see your dad. This is the time to do it because he's, he's about ready to die. And I remember I hung up the phone thinking like, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't care about this guy. And I was laying there on my bed and I felt the Lord convicting my heart at the time. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what it was, but I could just feel this heaviness, this burden, um, that I was doing something wrong. Uh, and what God convicted my heart was no matter what kind of person you were in life, nobody deserves to die all alone on the battlefield or nobody deserves to die all alone. And we learned that lesson on the battlefield, right? No matter if we hate this guy, we're in the, we're in the military together, we hate this guy, he just gets on our nerves. If that guy gets hit and goes down, you are gonna run through gunfire to pull that guy out. It doesn't right. matter, it just doesn't matter. You're never gonna leave a guy behind. And so that's what the Lord was convicting my heart of. And so I bought a plane ticket, I flew to San Francisco, and then I got a connector to Redding, California, rented a car and drove two and a half hours uh, to Mad River. And I got to see my dad um, before he passed away. And I got to share with him my time in the military, uh, what I did. And then um, it was getting about midnight. This is Easter Sunday. It's getting about midnight. And my dad asks, uh, or I asked my dad, I said, uh, I said, dad, are you, you ready to go home and, and be with Jesus? And, uh, and he said, yes. And so we prayed right there together. And uh, and my dad uh, passed away right in my arms. And man, I just broke down. You know, I led this guy to the Lord when I didn't even really sure what that meant or if I was even a Christian yet. And uh, I remember I just cried out to the Lord. I just said, God, if you're there, like, show me something, show me anything that, 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 that I'm on the right path, that I'm figuring this stuff out. I never prayed a prayer like that before. And then uh, I just sucked it up, you know? The good Marine came back out and called the corner, prepared the body, pack up some things, like all of that stuff that you have to do. The next morning, I uh, drove back to Redding, California, because I had to catch a connector to San Francisco and then back to Seattle. And man, I was 
worn out. I was physically, mentally, and emotionally just wiped out. I hadn't eaten in a couple of days or shaved. I didn't have this great big old beard. Um, I was clean shaven at the time, but I was looking pretty rough. You know, I still got covered with all these, you know, tattoos everywhere. And I'm in like a tank top and some cutoff shorts, you know? And I remember I get to the Reading airport and I see this little blonde girl sitting there and she just looked at a place and you guys will understand this. When somebody looks at a place, you just pay attention to them. Like sure. this person here, it's odd. And so I noticed that, but I was so mentally burned out. I didn't really pursue it. I got on the aircraft and I fell asleep. Um, and it was only like a 20 minute flight from Reading to San Francisco. I got off the flight and I remember grabbing my bags and I'm standing there in, in the jet, in the jetway. And I'm just thinking like, I need a cup of coffee. I'm in that really weird, hazy, just woke up from sleep, you know, like I need a cup of coffee. And I hear this little voice behind me and, uh, it says, uh, it says woman, she says, excuse me, sir. And I remember thinking to myself, like, whatever your problem is, lady, I am not the guy to help you. So I turned around and I was kind of gruff with her. I said, what, what do you want? And it's that little blonde girl. And she goes, you know, I don't know if you believe in God or if you're a Christian, but the Lord really put it on my heart to tell you that he's happy with the way you're living your life now. And I'm telling you, it's like the whole world stopped spinning for me. And I just broke down like heavy sobs, ugly crying in the middle of the San Francisco airport in front of this little like 16 year old girl. And uh, I said, can I buy you a cup of coffee? And so we sat down and we talked and I, I, I told her everything I had gone through in the last 48 hours, you know, and I come to find out that she was a, a exchange student from Norway. That's why she stuck out to me. And she was actually like 20 years old. She just looked really young. And she was, she was attending a Bible college in Redding, California. And so God prompted her uh, on her heart to, to tell me that. And uh, that changed my life, man. I knew uh, there was no doubt in my mind that God was real and that he loved me. He had a plan for my life and I, I needed to continue what I was doing. And so I came back to church that next week and there'd been a pastor that had been asking me to go to Mexico to build a home for a homeless family. And I was like, no, thanks. I'm good. Not into it. Um, but I came back to church and I found him and said, all right, I'll go. I'll go with you on that trip. I didn't know it at the time, but they stopped allowing people on that trip in November. It opens up November 1st. And by November 30th, they closed the trip because it's full. But he'd kept a seat open because God told him that I was supposed to be, man, I get so emotional about this. How can you not, dude? Let you had go, coffee man. with the Let Holy Spirit, man. Yeah, tell it, It's man. amazing. Like, what kind of coffee did you have with the Holy Spirit? <laughs> did you at least get him, did you at least get him uh, some Starbucks or something? I mean, seriously. God told him I was supposed to be on that trip, man. And uh, and so he saved me a seat. And it was on Memorial Day weekend. And I had plans for Memorial Day. I was going to sit at a bar and I was going to have a beer with Brian, my friend, who passed away. And uh, so I spent every Memorial Day. Um, but I was going to do something different that year. And so I went to Mexico, man, and I built a home for that homeless family. And it was the first time that I had felt anything in my heart. I'd been so dead inside. But helping those people, man, I felt something I had never felt in such a long time. And uh, I knew there was something there and that I needed to keep going. After that trip, I went back to my church and I said, I got to go back. I need another one of these trips. And they said, yeah, man, that Mexico trip only happens once a year, but we know some other guys that we can get you in contact with. And so they did. And I hit the mission field and I spent seven years traveling around the world building churches and schools and orphanages in places like Cambodia, where I got to see Anchor Wat, like building an orphanage in South America, where I got to see the Aztec temples, all these places that I never thought I would see. God took me there because I was helping other people. Man, people who don't believe in God 
and don't think that he's real. He's real. And I've seen it. I've seen people who are blind get healed. I've seen people like me who are hurting and dead inside come back and be healed by the power of God and go on to heal other people. Listen, your vulnerability takes an incredible amount of courage, man. And I just, God bless you, dude. Like you have, you have talked to God, you have talked to the Holy Spirit and he's shown himself. And I appreciate seriously you sharing that with us today, man. Yeah. You know, when you're helping other people, you're, it, it's, it's actually helping you. And I wrote about all of that in my book, actually. Uh, I'm going to plug my book real quick, Healing Through Service. You know, I talk about that in my book. Um, about how, you know, when you're helping other people, you're, it, it's, it's actually helping you uh, more than the person you're helping. And so how I wrote it, I wrote it similar to like a five paragraph order, right? So each chapter is exactly the same, same five steps where we do the personal recon, like a story from my life um, about the concept we're introducing. Then we'll do uh, the scientific data behind it which is the field intel. Then we'll do the scriptural unpack. What does the Bible say about this? And how do those two things combine? And then I go into tactical application. How can we take the concept that we just learned and put action steps together to go live it out right now today? And then a conclusion, which is like a summary or a transition to the next, um, the next thing we're talking about. And so you walk through this entire book, um, and by I'm kind of Mr. Miyagiing people through the process, right? Like I'm having them do these little things, not really knowing why they're doing it until they get about halfway through. And then they see this, oh, all these things I'm doing, it leads to this, this step. And so I've proved to them that this works because they've been recording it. So there's a companion journal that goes with it that we call it healing through service. It's the warrior's guidebook to overcoming trauma. And so the companion journal is, um, so that way, when they're done with the book and the journal, they have their own guidebook using these principles, but using their own life and their own mental health struggles to create their own guidebook for their life to overcome struggles. Um, that is awesome. Man, and I, and I know that there's like three other things you're doing too that we didn't talk about. We even talk about your app. <laughs> yeah, so the app, um, so all of this stuff here, um, everything that I've learned, I'm really just taking it and putting it into a digital format to help people uh, increase their mental health and prevent suicide. So even in my organization, I was still having problem with guys feeling suicidal and struggling. And, um, you know, we, we haven't had any, uh, any attempts or, or completions um, from guys in my organization, but they were still really struggling with it. And I couldn't figure out why I'm like, these guys are doing well and then they would plummet and then they do well and then they would plummet. I'm like, what is this roller coaster? What's happening? So I did a lot of research and I found out because I asked guys like, when you're struggling, why don't you reach out? Why don't you call one of us? Like, oh, I don't want to bother you. I'm like, this is what I do. You're not bugging me, dude. So I found out that when somebody's going through a mental health crisis, part of their brain shuts down. So their cognitive thought processing is reduced. And so what's in that frontal lobe is good decision-making skills, long-term planning, and the ability to overcome impulses. And that's super important to know. Because guys don't want to commit suicide. They just don't want to continue living the way that they are. And so when they're going through a mental health crisis, with that part of their brain reduced, especially the part that is for them to be able to overcome uh, impulses, when they have the impulse to, to commit suicide, they just act on it without processing through it. And so I needed to figure out a way to help them. I'm a calm guy, right? Communication. So I'm like, okay, I got to figure out a better way for these guys to communicate when they're in crisis. And so that's how the app, which was originally designed just for veterans, it was called Operation Pop Smoke because we use the term pop smoke means I'm getting out of the area. Hey, Gunny needs two volunteers. Hey man, I'm popping smoke, I'm out, right? But really I used it for signaling on the battlefield. If I'm gonna call in a nine line brief and get a chopper inbound to pull my wounded guys out, um, I'm gonna use smoke to mark the DZ. I'm going to use white smoke to cover my guys coming in, but I'm going to use red smoke to tell that chopper where to land and pick up my dead and my wounded. And so we use it as a signal. So on the app, uh, the same thing, Operation Pop Smoke, there's a white canister and a red canister. So if you're feeling just a little out of sorts, you hit the white button uh, and it sends an alert out that you're struggling. If you push the red button, it sends another alert out, but it's an emergency. 
I'm suicidal, homicidal, about to use uh, drugs. So how it works, um, I went back and I did, I had done a lot of research and I came across a study that said, it was from the Department of the Army. And it said the number one determining factor of success on the battlefield is the squad. They studied this for 40 years and they determined that we're successful on the battlefield because we fight in squads. Because every member of the squad values the squad over themselves and they're gonna fight harder and longer to stay alive because they don't wanna let the squad down. And then the other side of that, every member of the squad knows that if they get injured or pinned down, that their squad is literally gonna walk through hell to get them out because nobody is gonna leave a man behind. So I reintroduced the idea of the squad as being a successful component to the veteran's life. And I tell them, you need three or four guys that you, can, that you know and trust that can help you when you're struggling. And we help them create that squad. Everybody downloads the app. It's a messaging app. Everybody downloads the app, they're in the same squad. Now it's not social network, so you can't search for people on there or anything like that. It's a totally private messaging app. Now, if somebody's struggling with mental health and they push that red button, that alert button, two very important things happen. Number one, for the individual who's in distress, when they press that button, it uh, turns on what we call a cognitive reconditioning program. They're grounding techniques. They're five questions that are designed to bring your cognitive thought process back online. So that way you can process through those next few moments as you're waiting for your squad to answer up on that chat feature. The other thing it does is that it sends that alert to your, your, your buddies that are in that group and it pops up on their phone like an Amber alert. And when the Amber alert pops up, they select it and it takes them into that chat feature and they can start instantly chatting with that individual in distress. But what if they go dark? What if they stop communicating? And we've all seen the forums and the threads where a veteran or somebody has given a goodbye message and then people are scrambling like, where is this guy? How do we find his mom? Where does he live? I eliminated all of that nonsense because when they push that button, it pops smoke. It turns on the GPS locator on their phone. And now their friends that are on the app can navigate directly to that individual's location or direct emergency services to them. Um, it was still kind of in its beta form. And I got a call from Cone Health uh, out of North Carolina. And they said, hey, we love this idea. Can you come out and present it to us? We'd like to institute it uh, in our hospital. And so I did. I flew out there and I gave a presentation and they said, absolutely, we love this. Uh, we want it for our hospital. Can you create one for our hospital? So we have Operation Pop Smoke, and then we created what's called We Care Empowered. And it's it's the exact same app. The skin is different, and it's for uh, healthcare professionals. And, yeah. the first, and so they put it into a pilot program in the first 90 days. Uh, with This is with their employees. And in the first 90 days of use, uh, we prevented nine suicides and mitigated three other mental health crises and five direct contacts to the suicide hotline. We created another clinical version, which is Q-Actual, and uh, that started its medical trials in February. Um, so it's, it, the app is in medical trials right now. And so it's, it's literally saving lives right now today. And the best, so it's, it's, it's powerful in the hands of the squad, but it's more powerful in the hands of an organization. And here's why, because they can, the squad can help that individual in the moment, right? To get through uh, that moment in time, but then they're gonna need additional resources and support. And that's where an organization can come in. So like the Wounded Warrior Project or like the VFW or AMVETS or even like my organization, uh, the squad can help them, but then they're going to need additional resources going beyond that. Like, how do we get this guy into alcohol treatment or how do we get this guy, whatever. And so um, that's where an organization can come in and really be, it can be a force multiplier for an organization to be able to stay connected with their guys and help them when they're in crisis. One of the things that we built into it is called a clinician dashboard. So if the three of us are a squad and we're helping one another with our mental health and I decide like, Hey guys, I need more help than this. I'm going to go see a mental health specialist. Um, and so I start working with a mental health specialist. The mental health specialist can actually contact me via the app. So there's a dashboard that he gets that can monitor my mental health. Because one of the other components that we put in is basically like you guys have done PMs on radios, right? Where you got the record jacket and all the PMs. Of course. I, I try I created, to avoid those all the time, but yeah. <laughs> I created a PM for your brain. Um, and so every day this thing pops up and it asks you four questions to gauge your mental health. 
and then it goes away. You answer the questions and then it disappears. Our average member uses the app about 30 seconds every day to answer these questions. At the end of the week, they will get an email that shows them their mental health data for the week, their month, and their year to date. So they can start to gauge their own mental health and they can start to see when they're on a decline. Now, the squad doesn't get this information. The only person who gets it is the individual who's inputting the data. Mm. But if they want to be seen by a mental health professional, they can give the mental health professional access to their data. And so now if I have a mental health specialist, he can see my scores over the last week have been declining because my tile changes from like green to gold to red, you know, or black if I'm just not responding. Um, and so he, he can pop it up and if he's got 20 patients, he can see in a snapshot, who does he need to reach out today? Somebody's in orange today, so I'm gonna reach out to them before they get in crisis. And it gives them more power to be able to, to reach out to these guys before they end up in the ED again with suicidal ideations, just by being able to track that mental health data and how it ebbs and flows throughout the year. Hugh, there's so many things that you've set up to connect with, <laughs> uh, but our, our heart, I think like yours is focused on that individual Marine that's struggling right? Yeah. Individual service Marine that's struggling. So if somebody was listening to this and said, I need that, where do you tell them to connect with you first? Absolutely. So uh, you can, you can check out our website, uh, operationpopsmoke.com or qactual.com, but the apps are available on the app store. You can download them right now today. Now here's the kicker. It's $24 a month for the subscription. And that's why we're trying to partner with organizations to um, purchase this app for the individual because the organization gets benefit as well because they're able to actually uh, better serve the, the veterans that they're working with. So when I went to Cone, they have a venture group, a venture capitalist group, and I partnered with them. So they became my partner uh, and they own, uh, right now they own 10% of the company. And they're getting me, they're the ones who helped me get into the medical trials. And I was just doing, before I talked with you guys, that call I was on was I was pitching for $2 million. So I've got a pitch deck, um, which is just a cool way to say I got a PowerPoint presentation uh, about the app, what it can do. I'm trying to raise $2 million from angel investors right now. So I can hire on a marketing team and a sales team to be able to go out to these different hospitals and organizations and get them to purchase it for not just their staff, but for hospitals to be able to purchase it for patients coming in or large organizations or employers to purchase it for their members. Brother, you need TRICARE to buy this. It's a whole lot less expensive than all those psychiatrists they got on the board. So tell me this, man, when they sign up, uh, can they connect with somebody before they got to give up a credit card? No, so that's the thing. They create their own squad. Right. So they can connect with me anytime. So you can go to sergeantq.net. So sgtq.net. That way you can find everything, you know, my speaking engagements. If I'm going to be nearby, uh, it, it's going to show, you know, all the different places that I'm going to be speaking or teaching. Uh, it'll share with you about the book and how you can get involved in that. It's designed to be taught like a small group. So if anybody goes and reads the book and then they want to teach it, there's a way for them to do that. I created a whole video series. Um, that goes along with it. It's a six week long uh, program that you meet once a week and you go through these exercises as a team. Uh, it'll tell you about the app. So everything that I'm into, you can find right there at sergeantq.net, sgtq.net. Um, but for the app, you've got to, and this is why, again, an organization is helpful because you've got to create your own support network, right? So you download the app, it's $24. And then you send out three invitations to your friends and family. And so when they download the app, um, you guys are connected automatically. So there's no searching for anybody or anything like that. There's no connecting with other people. It's just for you to create your own support network, which is going to alleviate a lot of the burden that our mental health, um, you know, our mental health professionals feel because they're overburdened with, with all these people who need help. And what people need to realize is a lot of that help they can get from their own friends and family. And so the app also teaches them how to do that. How do we help one another? So there's a whole training. So when you download the app, you don't just download it, but it, it makes you go through these training blocks that you cannot bypass, right? Like nobody wants to read the instructions. Well, 
you have to read the instructions or at least click through them to, to learn how to use the app. And so uh, it'll only that, take you. That's going to drive all the warrant officers out there nuts, dude. <laughs> <laughs> we can always use donations. So Q Missions is a registered 501c3 and 100% of the donations go to veterans programs. Nobody has a paid position there, not even me. I, I'm the founder and I don't have a, a paid position. And to be honest, my janitorial company that I own is, is, our, is still our number one uh, donor to the program. Hopefully somebody will outpace me, but uh, it's not today. So if they wanna write a big check and, and, and they can do it that way. Um, if they're interested in the app and they wanna know more about that, like how do I bring this to my company or my organization, reach out to me. Um, it, you can look at uh, SergeantQ uh, at QMissions.org or SergeantQ at Operation Pop Smoke. You just look at SergeantQ.net, you'll find me. Send me an email, I can get you uh, some information about that. If you're interested in becoming one of these angel investors, there is a huge upside um, monetarily for that. Uh, we have a safe note that we'll be, we'll be giving out and I can give you more details on that. Um, but I am actively doing pitches right now to raise the 2 million so I can get this thing, uh, you know, broaden my reach um, with this app. So there's a, a huge monetary side, but the, the US economy loses about $69 billion a year due to suicide. That's from the CDC website, $69 billion a year uh, in medical costs and work loss. But the true cost uh, is the human capital that we lose. It's the mothers and the fathers and the brothers and sisters that we lose who are an integral part of making that family unit a success. It's uh, the loss of human capital, the ingenuity um, an experience that we lose when people take their lives prematurely. I mean, geez, if I would have been successful in my suicide attempt, I wouldn't have built a business employing over 105 people in the Northwest. I wouldn't have written a book and helped hundreds of veterans overcome trauma. I wouldn't be building this life-saving app um, that's set to go nationwide here in a few months. Or make me cry today. <laughs> so the true loss we have is human capital. You know, and I say that this, you know, the app and the people that are going to come alongside and help me fund it and get it out there, we may not change the world, but I guarantee you that we may save the lives of the people who will. So, Brother, man, your connection between science and spirituality and, and Lord Jesus Christ, dude, and just like then your passion and drive and focus for everything is, I'm not overstating this, man, this is the for my soul for the soul of everybody that hears this and everybody you must connect with is the most focused and founded approach to this i have heard ever amazing man thank you so much dude thank you i'm not yeah. ending this i'm just saying thank you i uh so when i when this when this podcast was created, like you are the poster child for, for everything I thought of. Really. <laughs> like, uh, like I, I know so many guys that would call me on a weekly basis talking about suicidal ideations, talking about like just being down, like no hope, but the conversations I would have with guys, I'm like, these guys are talented human beings. They can do so much if they just get out of their own way if they just find a way to have some hope um, and, and, and you're that guy. Like, I hope, I hope people can see 13 years later, 13, 14 years later, what happens if you get yourself past that, that point and what you can do. Cause there's power, there's power in those depths. Um, the guys in the very low rungs of society and the guys up top, like they both speak truth in a way that I don't think, most humans spend their lives. Most people kind of spend their lives in the gray zone where they don't really feel all together. And I think, uh, I think that's the area that, that people can, can unite. I want to leave you guys with this. You know, I, um, when I started building this app, like I said, it's three years. So I want to make a clear, there's a clear, uh, you know, difference between the nonprofit work that I do and the app. So the app is a for-profit company. Um, but uh, when I first was trying to get funding to build it, I mean, I've spent over $150,000 of my own money and three years of my life to build this. And, you know, uh, Cone Health has matched me with the funds 
that I put in and also getting in, into medical trials. Um, and man, it was some dark days in the beginning. Like, why am I doing this? Like nobody cares, nobody's supporting it. Nobody's uh, helping me. I couldn't raise funding. So I literally put my house on the market and I was going to sell my house to build out the app because I knew this is where God uh, wanted me to go. And I, mean, I knew it. I mean, he gave me the vision for it. Right. And so, um, and this comes from, uh, this is one of those aha God moments, right? It comes from Matthew 13, 44 through 46. It says this, it says, the kingdom of heaven is hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then with his joy, he went out and sold all that he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. And that was me. I, I put my house on the market to sell it. I was selling off everything I have. I was taking all of my profits from my company and dumping it into building this app because I knew that it was way bigger um, than anything I had ever done before. And it was the direction that God was, was leading me. And so um, I just want to encourage you guys out there that are listening, that if you have a dream, if you have a calling that God has put on your life that you know that you need to do, but you're, you're scared, you're afraid, like, what if it doesn't work out? Um, you know, people say, well, what if I, what if I uh, do this and it doesn't work out? I say, well, what if you, what if you do it and it does? So don't be afraid. Take that fear and, and capture it and let it be the catalyst for your success. You got to grab that fear and you've got to ride it on to victory. And so whatever that is, and you've been listening to, to me talk about these things and where I'm at, and you're like, man, I've been there too, or I'm there right now. Like you don't have to stay there. You can grow past that. You have the power within you to, to do something great in this world. And the only person stopping you is you. And that was my biggest thing is I found out that I was the person that was holding myself back all these years. And once I let go of that, I let go of all that pain and that hurt. Um, it's like a slingshot analogy. You put a pebble in a slingshot. When you pull it back, when you let that rock go, it goes farther and faster than anybody ever thought possible. And a lot of the things that we deal with in life, whether it's hurt from, from childhood, from combat from relationships that you've been in from violence that you've experienced all that stuff it truly does hold you back it's true it was holding me back but it was only holding me back because I refused to let go of it and so if that's you today if you're struggling um, with all these things that are holding you back you're the pebble that's in that slingshot and all that stuff that's holding you back man as soon as you let go of it it's going to launch you farther into your future than you're ever going to imagine and you're going to have so much success you're, you're going to look back and be like wow why did i wait so long to let go of that burden you know and and that starts actually um with getting to know jesus christ and so i would just encourage you that if this message spoke to you uh, if you felt that stirring in your spirit that you walk into the first church that you come across, man, there's going to be a pastor in there who's going to want to talk to you. He's going to want to pray with you. And um, you can start your journey today, just like I did 13 years ago. And it's not going to be a smooth ride, man. It's going to be rough, but stick with it. And uh, I'd love to hear, you know, from any of you guys uh, who do that and, and find great success. Uh, I'd love to love to talk to you guys and help you in any way that I can. Take us to church, Q. I, uh, I got nothing to say on top of that, man. That's a way to wrap this up. Nor should you. The warrant officer is speechless, brother. I appreciate you. Awesome, guys.